Jerry Ratcliffe again with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Robert Shug is a neurocriminologist, clinical psychologist and professor at California State University, Long Beach. We talk about mind hunters, the media and the real science behind serial killer research. Find out more in this episode at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Dr. Robert Shug is a neurocriminologist specializing in the biology and psychology of the criminal mind. His research focuses on understanding the relationship between extreme forms of psychopathology and antisocial criminal and violent behavior. He has a PhD in psychology and extensive clinical training as a forensic psychologist. He's worked with jail inmates, sex offenders, and forensic psychiatric inpatients. His many articles cover psychopathy, schizophrenia, and homicide offenders, and he's also published a leading textbook on mental illness and crime. His unique developmental timeline approach to the study of homicide offenders is the subject of this episode. Robert's a professor at California State University, Long Beach, a licensed clinical psychologist, and he is on the Los Angeles Superior Court's approved panel of psychiatrists and psychologists. We ran into each other in Salem, Oregon, of all places, where I was running some training and he was doing some research. We caught up in a hotel bar and over a few adult beverages. He schooled me on the difference between serial, spree and mass killers, and I found out just how close my nephew is to being a homicidal maniac. You had this interest, you saw Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs piqued the interest, but then I had to sort of let my rock star career fizzle out and get back into school. Okay, we very briefly have to touch on your rock star career. Tell us a little bit about that, come on. Have you got a CD to sell? (laughs) No, uh, the reason I'm out here is because I I dropped out of Arizona State University three and a half years in, pre-med, full scholarship to be a rock star in 1990. uh, One, your parents must have loved you for that decision. (laughs) And secondly, tell us about the rock star career. Right, so my parents were supportive. They didn't particularly care for the idea, but like any good parent, they let me you know, uh, make my own mistakes. I worked very hard at it, but uh, I didn't achieve nearly the success I had hoped. What were you doing and what was the band name? I shouldn't let any of that information out because there's a lot of Googling. uh, I don't want pictures of me from that time period showing up when I'm being cross-examined on the witness stand for some sort of (laughs) trial in Los Angeles, right? So the rock star career didn't pan out? Did not, I mean, but I gave it a a, a solid go. No regrets? No regrets, and it got me here. Well, not here. no, it did get me here because it got me to Los Angeles and got me to thinking about being a responsible adult, you know, not doing rock star stuff. It got me back into school and got me connected with Adrian Rain, who was at USC at the time. And I, so I did my PhD with him and that opened up a bunch of opportunities. So doors opened for me and kind of allowed me opportunities along the way that led to this thing based on Silence of the Lambs. Uh, but I will say, I mean, you know, part of being a musician is you, you learn to deal with all sorts of people being on stage. Kind of, I kind of take some of that with me, I think, into most of my interactions with people. You never know when an unrelated skill set from one period of your That's life right. becomes useful somewhere along the line. You never know when some serial murderer is going to ask you to play Freebird by Leonard Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> you were a lead guitarist? Yes. Of course you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, part of what I want to convey is that this work is important 
that there is a, a gap in the literature, a significant gap in the literature, that hasn't been really addressed really emphatically, I think, since the FBI kind of started it in the late 70s with their criminal profiling project. You know, and if you watch the show Mindhunters, you sort of see the evolution of that. And then after that, nobody really sort of picked up the ball and carried it on. In, in terms of like the serial killer literature, there's some kind of cool books that came out in the 90s and a few good journal articles, but most of the empirical literature at this point is still locked into case histories, or, or case studies rather, and kind of psychological theory that is a bit vague, nebulous, and not really grounded in anything horribly scientific. The psychologist basically sitting there making shit up. Kind of. I mean, and, you know, because I, I do that all the time, and I know. We're going to make a living, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but, but, that, but that's kind of what psychologists did, you know, for decades in their publications. They would write, they would theorize, right? You know, psychology is a soft science, and, you know, a lot of it has yet to be sort of validated and proven, you know, through, with data. And it's not like there's a mass of serial killers out there. Well, see, that's the thing. The idea of, of a need for research on serial killers I think people have to understand it, it, it needs to go beyond just it being interesting and cool and dark and sexy and those things, even though there's a wonderful reason for doing research. Yeah, I think um, you've just described what every single 19-year-old student who is studying criminal justice and psychology, right. dual major, I know exactly what they want to do. Right, right. I want to be a criminal profiler they, or whatever. Yes, uh, they've all seen Silence of the Lambs. They but, want to be well, Clarice. But to be fair, that's, that was the movie that got me started in 1991. You wanted to be Clarice. Jodie Foster was actually quite attractive at that time, remember? <laughs> I remember, and at that time I was doing something completely different in my life, but I remember walking out of that movie theater, it was in Glendale, California, and uh, thinking, like, my head was spinning and I felt really weird inside like but the idea of using science to understand the quote-unquote criminal mind that's where the seed was planted in me and even though I it took me a while to get back around to academia that's kind of where this all started problem is though just like as you mentioned you know I'm not gonna blame the media but it's through the media that we have our uh, ideas about serial killers and through all of the murder porn shows right so the criminal minds and Mindhunters you know is actually quite good but there's been a proliferation of these kind of television shows people are interested in this but they don't know where to turn for real knowledge they're relying on information that was gathered in the late 70s by the FBI and was never really uh, never really validated to be honest but never really expanded upon in a responsible way well and also I kind of got the sense that the FBI's research methods back with the Behavioral Research Unit were not empirically robust. So th that FBI study is critical and it kind of was starting point. And anytime you are on the cutting edge of something, there's lots of room for mistakes. That's the problem with the cutting edge, there's often a lot of bleeding. That's right. And that, this is an excellent example. They certainly uncovered a lot of really helpful and useful and interesting information, but it was a small sample size. It was only 36 guys. It was a heterogeneous sample. There were, I think they said, they described the sample as serial and sexual murderers. So it wasn't even 36 serial killers. It was a, a mix. Should they always be thought of as a separate group? Well, I think we can get into that because I think part of what we're doing with this is understanding that the value of studying a distinct group based on a distinct behavior probably is not as good as understanding it on a continuum of violence. What we're really doing is studying the most violent of the population, right? right? And, and what we learn about serial killers, we can certainly apply to single murderers and maybe, you know, violent criminals of other sorts, right? A lot of those same factors are probably in play. We shouldn't think about them as an isolated 
population. We should think of them as the extreme end of violent individuals. Right, so they, so they don't have separate triggers or markers. So it's an arbitrary line between a violent person and a serial killer. I would assert yes. They're not a distinct group of people. The reasons these people commit multiple homicides are often very understandable. They're often very contextually congruent, meaning given the situation they were in, the choice they made to do it makes sense, right? Now we can talk about people who commit murder and serial murder who have mental illness, and that happens, you know, as well. But when you're talking about people who kill over and over for sexual reasons, you know, you're extending normative human drives and behaviors and thoughts and feelings, you know, into this one particular type of behavior. They're not monsters, we'll talk about that I suppose in a bit. They're humans, you know, that are engaging in behaviors that they're choosing to engage in. And more often than not for reasons you and I would probably understand if we sat down and listened to them. Okay, so you think there's a strong rationality behind this then? Not always, but I'm saying that there are human needs being met. Lots of folks are interested in this but there's very little science behind it. Well, in a way, that's kind of fascinating because there's so much television programs about it. And honestly, you know, I'll teach, a, I'll teach 100 undergraduate students in doing intro to law enforcement. And like half of them want to go to law school and half of them want to be criminal profilers. Right. But in actual fact, where the real work in terms of understanding that is in the science, and the science is largely absent. Yes, very few studies. It's almost uncanny what appears to be a complete lack of interest by quote-unquote scientists relative to the obsession of, you know, the American populace. Well, you've just described policing research as well. Same way. Which is, yeah, I mean, policing research has become a thing in the last 20 years. Right. But we've had policing for 200 years, and we've had cop shows since black and white television. That's right. That's right. And that's unfortunate because I do believe in my heart of hearts that people are ready for an elevated understanding of serial murder and they can handle it. So the television side of things has really helped because that means that people are not horrified with the idea of saying that we're studying serial killers. That's right. And I think the fact that we just see show after show after show further uh, underscores the point that there is an interest in this. It's just in no way completely morbid, by the way. And that's just it. And it's funny because what I will often get is the person who, like, so what do you do? And here's what I do. And oh my God, that's so fascinating. And I feel so guilty saying this, but I can't stop watching this show or that show or the other show. Does that make me a bad person? I mean, I get a few listeners to this podcast but nothing compared to the numbers that the true crime podcasts some of those are huge well I have theories about that so I think it's important to understand violence and aggression it's a very uh, a very human experience traits their drives right so the evolutionary biologist will tell you we as a species would not have survived without aggression and violence okay Freud even talked about aggression and violence being inherent to our existence that we spend our whole lives trying to fit into society without killing each other, without, without acting on these drives. So when someone says, how can somebody possibly kill somebody? How can someone take the life of somebody? The real question should be, how is it the rest of us don't? Because we're all wired to do it, right? We all have these impulses. I, I mean, I'm this close to offing the person a few tables exactly, away that's talking right? too loudly. So we have the impulses, they're inherent, they're biological, right? We spend most of our lives dampening those impulses, not acting on them. That is probably why there's an interest in this, where people might be sort of trying to 
distance themselves from their own aggression, which they find impulsive or sort of undesirable. So I'm not like those guys on TV, but I need to keep watching to make sure. So do you think it's, I don't want to get totally nerdy on you, but are we saying that serial killers probably are no different than the rest of us, except for in an R2-D2 sense, they just don't have their restraining bolt? Well, I think that's part of it. I think if we're looking to answer the question why, uh, the restraining bolt is very critical. And most of us do have the restraining bolt in the form of the prefrontal lobe, the prefrontal cortex in our brain. The part of our brain that was evolved most recently uh, that keeps us from acting out on impulses that is responsible for planning and organization. Most recently? In the evolutionary picture, right? That's the part of the brain that has come online the most recent. When you see the drawing at the National History Museum of the caveman and he's getting more and more vertical and so yeah. here we are at the end in our suits and our briefcases or whatever, that's where the prefrontal cortex is the most developed. And, and, gotcha. you know, and uh, it's the thing that keeps us in line, right? It's, it's sort of equivalent to what Freud called the superego, right? The morals and values of society that have been copied onto our hard drives, right? So that we can go out and function in the world and not kill and have sex with everybody. Oh, I miss those days. Yeah, the, uh, the 90s were great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the idea that violence and aggression is a normal human experience doesn't mean we should be acting on it, but the potential is there. So studying serial killers then, trying to sort of unravel what are the things that lead up to a person not being able to dampen those impulses. And in the criminological literature, we, we're still talking about all these things. So we're really in just like a nascent stage of this research. Is this not a mature science? No, not at all. Is? I mean, I think, I think if we just want to talk about even just the brain alone, which we would assume is kind of the, the beginning and end of all behavior, right? We're still just at the beginning baby steps of understanding how the brain works. So we're nowhere near any kind of practical application of this stuff? Well, you know? but, now see, here's the thing. So we do uh, a term, serial killer prevention course. Well, but that's kind of where, where we, we should be headed with this. But we do have a fair understanding of how the brilliant, uh, how the brilliant. I've got a problem with my with prefrontal brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I think brilliant was my senior prom date. No. Um, the relationship between the brain and violent behavior, we're, we've, we're getting a handle on that. And there are studies that have shown this prefrontal area of our brain either not functioning correctly or not having enough stuff there. It's funny because we can think about, you know, the gray matter of the brain is like brake padding, right? And, and when your brake pads go out, when they thin out, it's harder to stop your car, right? So if for whatever reason there is less gray matter in a particular area of your brain, right. it's not going to function properly, we think. So the analogy here is basically a serial killer, we're all driving carefully and wearing our seatbelts and the serial killer is just barreling down the highway going, well, fuck it. Well, it might be, or it might be that we're all barreling down the highway, except the rest of us can stop when we want to and the serial killer might have problems. Now, that being said, not a lot of good, solid scientific studies on serial killers. A lot of this is kind of generalizing from maybe samples of mur single one-off murderers or violent individuals, you know, in general. Well, that's tricky because what differentiates a murder from somebody who commits an aggravated assault in, in many cities is how quickly the victim gets to hospital. Right. Or what differentiates a single from a multiple murder might be, you know, if you get arrested and imprisoned before you're able to do it again. Ah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. 
So I think even defining a serial killer for scientific study is inherently problematic. But we love to call people monsters because they do something we haven't done. Right, right. One of my favorite kind of sayings nowadays is there's no such thing as monsters. And I get this anecdotally from the work that I do, you know, interviewing serial killers and doing brain testing on them. And, and, and again, with the idea of trying to figure all this out. And I would bet that you ask any sort of beat cop the same sort of question, you know, like, are there people you interact with on, your, on the course of your job that you can sort of see the humanity in, even though they've done something really wrong and really harmed somebody, but, can so you still see them as a, a human, as a person? Yeah, so right? the, the best cops that I know are what I call natural police. Mm -hmm. And I kind of stole that phrase from The Wire because they're the people that can see the humanity even in very serious offenders. Right. And what they're able to do is, I'm not sympathize, but certainly empathize with their situation and their background, right. and often get intelligence from them because they can build relationships. Right. And instead of seeing people as black and white, everybody's evil, everybody's a monster, everybody's right. a good guy, right. they see everybody as a kind of shade of gray. And right. well, you know what? If I'd grown up in this neighborhood, in this environment, exactly. I would see, I would be behaving like these people do. Exactly. And those cops tend to be the better ones in terms of gathering criminal intelligence because they can build relationships because they don't bring this judgmental streak with it. Right, and, and you just hit on the point that I wanted to make. Damn it, I wanted to make that point. But uh, are we allowed to say damn it on podcasts? I podcast say world? fuck all the time, so I think you're in good shape. <laughs> the idea of getting information from somebody, and you sort of described it as, you know, in terms of police work, and I think of getting information as a scientist, and what's the best way to get information? The best way is to leave judgment at the door, to see everyone as a human and to connect with that humanity. And, and I sit with people who have done some pretty awful things, but it's not hard to see the humanity in these people if you look. And so going into it with that agenda, I think is more helpful than say like what the FBI did is kind of going in, we need you for information to help us with our investigations. And they have a completely different mandate. So while it sort of worked in that era, Back to the criminal profiling project, you know, 70s and 80s. Nowadays, I, I don't think that it would have been as fruitful in terms of the information. Tell me a little bit more about the job that you do then. So you're I, traveling the country interviewing serial killers. Right. So I have Why? I, well, I, I have two really cool jobs. And so the first really cool job is the professor gig, right? And so it's through that job that I have to teach classes and I have to do research and I'm up here uh, at a facility that uh, I'm recruiting participants from for my serial killer project. This area is literally the serial killer mecca, I think, certainly of this part of the United States and, and maybe even the world. I can't say that with any authority, but I'm wondering. The town is called Salem, for crying out loud. <laughs> You're interviewing serial killers in Salem. You are one upturned pentacle from being a horror movie. Come on. I really am. And not just for those reasons, actually. So you, you, you have Jer Jerome Brudos, the I-5 killer, the Happy Face killer, uh, Ted Bundy operated in these parts, you know, so there's something about this part of the world that, so, that so lends itself. So when serial killers go on vacation, they go, th they go to wonder. the Pacific Northwest. Right, right, right. Yeah, and all I got was this lousy t-shirt right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a great opportunity uh, to, to come up here and talk to these guys. The other job I have back in LA County is uh, as a forensic psychologist, and so I often do evaluations for uh, the courts in, in Los Angeles. And I come across certainly folks who have committed any number or variety of murders, but serial killers as well down there. So it's uncommon for me to go 
several days in a row without talking to someone who has killed somebody. That must mess with you a wee bit, doesn't it? You know, we talk about troops coming from battle having PTSD. We right. talk about police officers having long-term exposure to all sorts of stuff. I saw stuff when I was a police officer that I can remember vividly of to course. this day, and it is decades ago, but I can still picture the entire scene, the whole situation. Right. You are speaking to what popular media portrayals would have us as the worst of the worst of our entire society. That's true. But what I have at my disposal certainly is training and experience. And I would say, I think most importantly, going into the experience with the mindset of connecting with another human to hear a story versus going to interview a monster right. who's done monstrous things. So maybe there's a lesson here for police officers for them then, which is to bring a mindset that is, this is a research project and I'm a scientist. I'm not bringing the kind of righteous law enforcement judgment to comes to dealing and interviewing with people. Is there something in this for, is there a lesson here for broader interviewing skills? I think anyone who is tasked with getting information from another human is better off connecting human to human as opposed to whatever the dynamic is in terms of cop, crook, or scientist. Because once you introduce that dynamic, you're introducing judgment, you may be introducing shame, fear, and I think that affects the quality of information that you get, ultimately. And so this side of things definitely rooted in developmental psychology and life course criminology. These words mm -hmm. make me run for the hills. Well, maybe they should, right? Life course criminology. I mean, just starting to open the book on that. I, 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 I read every sentence going, so what? How can I use this right. in policing in a practical sense? And that's the part I struggle with. Right. Well, maybe this will this will be an epiphany for you. Maybe you'll change your mind. Yeah, probably not. But <laughs> Maybe okay. you'll dash your, out of the plexiglass window. Okay. My supervisor trained me when working with patients with mental illness to come up with timelines to visually show a patient the risk factors in their life and how they were connected with their crimes and with their symptoms, right? So if you take a person's life, you take the time they're born and when they were arrested, and we say, okay. I try to look at data in three ways. Biological data, meaning things that happened to your head, head injury, things that happened when you, you, know, you were in utero. Psychological data, so signs of mental illness, emotions, thoughts, those kind of things. And then what we would call, in, in my neck of the woods, psychosocial data or environmental data, things that happen to you based on where you live and how you're brought up in family things, right? I've seen Carrie. Exactly. Hey. What is that? You see the microphones? Uh -huh. We're being recorded right now because he interviews serial killers. How do you tell a sociopath or a psychopath? Well, you don't say sociopath. That's a bad word. But in the meantime, another <laughs> red ale would be nice. I'll be right back. Would you like another glass? I do it. Yeah. Yeah, come on, dude. You just like talk to some crazy people, right? right. Well, they, they were completely sane. As, yeah. normal, as normal as you, as, as you and I. Interesting. Mm -hmm. They just killed slightly more people than you and I have. Well, as far as we know. Well, so slightly you more know. people yeah, than you, you have. <laughs> Great. So anyway, biological, psychological, and psychosocial is basically brain, mind, environment, right? And so they all coexist, but they're all kind of different. 
let's plot them on a timeline and see when they're happening, what's going on leading up to the first killing in a serial killer's life. Right? Okay, but where's the counterfactual then? I mean, do we take the rest of the general population? Because some of the rest of the general population will you're, have climbed a rope well, in your school class you're, and you're, hit their well, head wait, wait, after wait, wait, falling Right, right, well, right. You're, steal you're stealing my thunder, which I don't mind necessarily, but just let's talk about timelines. You totally mind. <laughs> Timelines as a technique. So falling off of a rope from gym class, plot it. Zinc poisoning, plot it. One of the problems with serial killer literature is that it's either earlier studies that may have sort of descriptive statistics on serial killers or murderers in general. I have a group of 50 murderers. Nine of them had experienced child abuse. 14 of them did drugs. Three of them had parents that were divorced. Not a lot of necessarily helpful information. Or you have to read the true crime books. But how do we know that they're not just experiencing the same things that people who don't turn out to be serial killers are? We don't, and that's the hypothesis we always need to be testing. Right? Because so. you know, you, you've got, um, in one case you've shown me, right. has somebody who's got knocked out boxing. Right. And my nephew, who is, as far as I'm well aware, not a serial killer at this point, shout out to Peter, has been knocked out Don't playing. do it, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> he's been knocked out playing rugby. Okay. Right. right. So the, the physiological effect is the same. But you're talking about one risk factor, right? So uh, is the assumption here that it's, a, it's an amalgam, it's a concentration of risk factors? That's exactly it. Is there, it's not only a concentration, is there a pattern to the concentration? Do certain risk factors have to happen maybe at or before a certain age? Do they have to happen in a certain combination with others? I started sequencing this data. So at age one, biological factor, age two, psychosocial factor and psychological factor, and building these sequences to then compare to normal people. Don't look at me, don't use me as a normal person because <laughs> I'm very far from being a normal person. You can build these sequences of risk factors and using genetic sequencing software to see is there any difference, not just in the presence of these risk factors, but in the sequencing of them. And maybe that's the key. And maybe it's not. But no one has looked yet. So, so the bottom line is there's work taking place, but we're, we're still at the embryonic stage of trying to figure out serial killers. Absolutely. And it's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. But like anything in science, if you can just nudge the ball forward a few yards down the field, uh -huh. you know, you, yeah. you did a good job. Three yards in a cloud of dust. <laughs> that's right. So when I, the, these true crime podcasts and these true crime novels, so when they're articulating all of these things that happen in the history of these people, they're just winging it basically. They have no idea whether those things will be contributory or not. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think they're relying on, on research that is correlational, which, you know, is not horrible to do that, but it's not, you can't do cause and effect based on correlational research, right? And this allows you to get closer to cause and effect. Doesn't get you cause and, cause and effect. You don't want cause and effect, but it doesn't get you cause and effect, but, but it allows you to see temporally, so in time, things that happen before other things. Um, and that might be equally, if not more important. How do you find a control group for this? So what do you compare to? Yeah, well, so one of the things that uh, I'm doing now is I actually have a sample of folks that I collected from a different project, but using the same materials and methods. Part of your training, I know, involved working with people with behavioral health issues. The ability to do what I do hinges upon me having a, a doctoral degree in psychology, right, as a research psychologist, and also being a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, 
all of those things have to come together and be in place for me to be able to walk in the prison down the street and do this research project. And along with those things goes the extensive amount of training I've had with people with severe mental illnesses. Do serial killers have a mental illness? Some do. You know, just sort of off the top of my Some head. Some don't. I would, I would argue many do not. And I think that is one of the most unfortunate misconceptions about serial killers is that they're crazy. I mean, the, the waitress just sort of proved that, right? You know, right. I've even experienced attorneys who have sort of purported in the courtroom that just because you're a serial killer means you have a mental illness, right? Is that a technique to try and get them out of punishment? Yeah, it's, it's, it's strategic, right? purely strategic. Yeah. The, the notion that serial killers are not necessarily, don't necessarily have a mental illness because that will be the first place that most people lead. Clearly there's something wrong with these people, for crying out loud, they kill lots of people. Right, well, if we're talking mental illness in, in the sense of like a psychotic disorder, like schizophrenia, like they're hearing voices or believing people are after them, many serial killers well, now, again, we, we have to, to frame this within the idea that the science is not good, right? Sure, so, okay. That, um, put, let's, let's just put that caveat across the whole podcast. Sure we, you know, right? There yeah, needs yeah. to be more science, right? Yes. But, but there are plenty, plenty of serial killers who, who do not have mental illnesses in that sense. Now, if we're talking about someone who's a psychopath, you know, who has no remorse, uh, lack of a conscience, you know, these are personality issues, you know, that might be possible. But, but mental illness, like anything else, is a continuum. It's a spectrum. And so they might have little bits of it or they might have a fair amount of it or, you know, somewhere in the middle. Do you think there's a difference between people who commit what I would consider to be a kind of classic serial killer pattern? They kind of pick up a hitchhiker in the Pacific Northwest and kill that person. And then a few months later, do the same thing. And a few months later, do it somewhere else. And spree killers who will walk into a church in Charleston or whatever and shoot 27 people. Right, well that's actually, the FBI would call it a mass murder, right? A mass so the, murder. I think the FBI got that right in their sense of classifying mass murders versus spree murders versus serial murders. So did I get that wrong? Spree kill is different than a mass murderer? Well, mass murder is a bunch of victims in one location. Say spree murder is a, a bunch of victims but across a number of locations. So I stab you here in the restaurant, I drink your very expensive beer. It's a hotel bar, the, all the beers are expensive in right, a hotel right, 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 bar. Right, right. I stab the cab driver and then I go up to the Capitol building and you know shoot a couple pedestrians. So it's it's like a spree, right? It's a, it's okay. a continuous psychological event, but oh, across okay, multiple Okay, so locations. let's add that up. So we've got the kind of classic. Charles Whitman climbs the clock tower with a rifle in one place, shoots as many people as he can. Okay, so and that is our over. classic mass murderer. Right, then it's And over. then we've got a spree killer who does one and then just flips their lid and just go around wandering the streets until they're stopped killing people in the streets. That's what it can look like, yes. And mm -hmm. a spree killer, and then we've got but, the- But it's one continuous psychological event for them, even though it's different locations. Right. Are uh, they different then, mass murderers well, and so, spree killers? So there's no research to suggest that they are or they aren't, but conceptually, it does, sounds like it would be, right? The guy who gets a bunch of weapons and ammunition and holes up in one place thinking, I'm going to take out as many people as I can and then I'm going to die. Very premeditated. Probably, right. Versus the person who, you know, is on the run and, and is continuing to commit murder after murder and not stopping, right? And it, they're usually sort of short-lived sprees, but nonetheless, that's kind of a different animal. I don't mean to use the anim term animal you know, I know pejoratively, I mean, yeah. but, but it's, it's, that's a different thing. Versus, again, 
the guy who kills and then can wait weeks, months, maybe years, and then do it again. And that's my impression of a classic serial killer. Exactly. Well, that's what the FBI originally sort of delineated, right? So what? Where is the, the so what in this is what do we do with it? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I'm glad you read my text. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I think ultimately we can't just do anything because it's fun and exciting and, and, you know, and sexy or whatnot. I think there are tremendous implications for this in the form of identification and intervention. Can we discern specific patterns of risk factors? And then is there a way we can identify these patterns in folks who haven't killed yet and intervene and set them on the right track? A lot of people don't have the stomach for that. No, I mean, right? you can just see the debate around oh, yeah, predi yeah, yeah. predictive policing. Right. The idea that you're starting to label these people, it has to be absolutely perfect. There is no room for error. That's completely unrealistic. Well, if we're saying, here's what I'm saying, I don't know what you're saying. Nobody but, ever does. Ask my, <laughs> ask my students. <laughs> and, no, but, but if you're saying, we're, we're going to get some information about you, you haven't killed anybody yet, but what we know about you matches up pretty well if we're really serious about cracking down on violence and we have legitimate science right and i think that's important too not not questionable science like we really need to be sure how down is society with with implementing what we know does that become a political question at that point do you think do we move beyond science and we say, this is where the science is, here are the risks, we can start labeling a bunch of people who are not going to be serial killers, but within that group, there's gonna be a few people who really might be significantly violent people in our society. I think the way you just phrased it is excellent. Like, we don't wanna be saying you're gonna be a serial killer when you've never harmed a fly in your life or whatever, right? But toning down the language and talking about violence and aggression, you know, it may be unusual violence and aggression. Does what you have been through, does, you know, your journey thus far match up so much with someone who has become violent? Is there something we can do for you that will help you and the rest of us? Ultimately, it becomes, unfortunately, entirely political. You know, when you're talking about making things laws and, and funding, and, you know, that's the realm of the politicians. And That fills me with hope, because yeah. <laughs> politicians are so good at understanding science, aren't they? Well, I just think that what that should do is sort of inspire the scientists to just really make sure we do great work. And also convey it well to right. them. Right, yeah. Because we have to pitch it at a level that right. politicians can understand it. Right. And I'm not sure any of us is capable of dumbing it down that far. <laughs> Are there any particular cases that have really kind of sprung to mind that just kind of blew you away? Well, without going into specifics, so I have to be really careful. I think what, what I found surprising is more often than not, the lack of something being wrong with a person when you think there should be. And then also on the flip side, when something is horribly wrong, you know, with someone where you never would have expected it. Huh. So you can interview somebody who's had done a dozen murders and actually come away thinking, well, what a nice guy who seems sane and balanced. I did that twice today. You know, that's when to answer, you know, that, that kind of question. Like, yeah, like, but that surprises me. So you're saying that this is somebody in a different environment I could have a beer with? Absolutely. And I don't feel ashamed in saying that. I'm not saying they should get out. I'm not saying open the gates, let them all be free, right? You know, people make decisions and are, should be held accountable. Like I'm 100% behind that. But do I allow myself to like these people? 
you know, to feel for these people well, and with these people for them. to empathize with them? Yeah. Of course. Of course I do. Because I would be bullshitting myself if I didn't. Robert, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to episode 22 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Salem, Oregon in January 2020. Other episodes look at reducingcrime.com and the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>